But I have to ask you a question uh, as we begin. How are you sleeping at night? Now, I don't ask this question of my wife. With a one-month-old baby in the house, I know better than to ask, right? But I ask the rest of you, how are you sleeping? Now, I rarely, if ever, have trouble getting to sleep or staying asleep. But I know that's not the case for everyone. Do you ever have sleepless nights? It's a problem. All of us at times can experience when we're anxious or when we're troubled about circumstances in life. Generally, we consider a sleepless night to be, I was going to say a curse, but maybe just less than the preferred uh, option. We don't consider a sleepless night to be a blessing. Nighttime, and especially we think of those quiet hours after midnight, can be a time of worry, a time of anxiety, where silence can produce a restlessness in our hearts, and our troubles can seem to grow and grow until they consume our minds. You know, in the darkness, every shadow can appear to be a terrifying monster. Our imaginations can very quickly and easily get the better of us at nighttime. But in Psalm 63, we find that David had a very different view of sleepless nights. David considered them to be as much a gift from God as a sound night's sleep. Now you might ask, how can that be? How can we reconcile that, if that's the case in Psalm 63, with what we read elsewhere in Scripture. For instance, Psalm 127 and verse 2, For so he gives his beloved sleep. Or Psalm 3 and verse 5, where David says, I lay down and slept, I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. Aren't we supposed to be able to sleep if we've trusted in the Lord? Well, there's no doubt that the Word of God does present a good night's sleep as a gift from God. But Psalm 63 would suggest to us that a sleepless night is no less a good gift from God because it is an opportunity. In fact, as I read Psalm 63, I see no less than four distinct opportunities that are ours when we find ourselves alone on a quiet, sleepless night. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't take advantage of these opportunities anytime, so don't get me wrong. It's not just for the uh, sleepless folk out there. Right? But they're especially powerful at those times when we are alone and isolated, when sleep will not come. So look with me, if you will, at Psalm 63. I'd like to read it and pray and ask the Lord's help as we study it this morning. So follow along with me there. Beginning in verse 1, David writes, O God, you are my God, early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. And my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. 
When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Because you have been my help, therefore in the shadow of your wings I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory. But the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help and blessing as we study his word together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful again today for your word. Without it, we would be lost, ignorant of the truth, ignorant of true wisdom. We'd be left to our own devices and we would be blind and destitute. And yet, Lord, you have shined the light of your truth down from heaven, and you have shined it abroad into our hearts because you've given us your word. And most importantly, you sent us your son so that we would see and know you. And I pray that you'd meet with us this morning as we study it. Help us to see the truth, that it might transform our hearts and our minds as we think about and understand it and meditate on who you are and what you've done. I pray that you would do a work that would be glorifying to yourself. Transform our hearts this morning. Help us to trust in you in Jesus' name. Amen. It's an interesting way to start a psalm. Oh God, you are my God. That's an unusual way of speaking to someone. It's kind of like if you said, oh pastor, you're my pastor. Oh wife, you're my wife. It's just a strange thing to say, I think. Why not just use the name, right? Well, I can't answer that question other than to say that the Holy Spirit didn't inspire the words, O Yahweh, you are my God, here. But it is an odd beginning, and at the same time, it illustrates a crucial point right from the outset of the psalm. The opportunities that I want to point out to you this morning are built on the foundation of a personal relationship with God. David speaks to God, and he says very simply and very boldly to him, you are my God. He has no doubt about who God is. The reason he doesn't doubt who God is is that he knows God in a personal way. It's not just that he knows a few things about God. Not that he's comfortable with the idea of God, but he knows God as a person. He says, you are my God. And this is the same place that we must begin today. Knowing God. Everything in this psalm is framed by David's personal knowledge of God. His relationship with Yahweh, his Lord. And every point where these words apply to our lives is framed by the exact same type of knowledge. And so I'll put it this way. If anything that I say this morning is to be helpful to you at all, it will only be because you have come to know God in Jesus Christ, his son. Only as far as you have experienced the presence of God in your heart and your soul, Showing you his power and his glory, filling your mouth with songs of praise, filling your soul with richness that completely satisfies, 
saving you by his gracious power and preserving you against the lies and slander of the enemy. Only to that extent will you find David's song compelling this morning. But if you have never before admitted that you're blind and weak and lost and hungry and desperately in need of Christ to be your Savior and your Shepherd, that it's unlikely that anything that I say or, for that matter, anything that David says in this psalm will have much of an impression on you at all. This song is a meditation of the heart of faith. David doesn't write it as a defense of the faith designed to convince the skeptic. He's writing to those of us who believe. At the same time, I will say this, that Psalm 63 contains a warning to all of those, men and women, boys and girls, who would hear these words and somehow think that they could be good with God without actually knowing him. Or a warning, it's also to those who think that they can take sides against the man or woman who is trusting in God and somehow overcome him. And the warning is this, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by your apparent strength and influence. Because God will come in judgment and you will be repaid for your unbelief and for the actions that that unbelief has produced. Now the good news is there's still a chance for you today to come to know God. Just as David did. He's not far off. He's not distant. He's not cold. He's nearby. And he's ready to receive anyone who would call on him. He sent Jesus, his son, to die on the cross for your sins. And he raised him up from the dead so that you could be made righteous in him. And you could have the hope of eternal life if you'll trust in him. This is the good news that undergirds everything that David says in Psalm 63. It begins with knowing God. And first of all, I want you to see that the man or woman who knows God, to them a sleepless night is an opportunity. Right here in verses 1 and 2, David says, O oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. The emphasis here in these first verses is the opportunity that we have to see God's glory. That's what David is talking about. He knows God. He has a deep desire to experience God's presence, his power, and his glory in a real and a tangible way. Now maybe, I'm sure most of you have heard about the Make-A-Wish Foundation. You're familiar with that organization. They raise money in order to grant wishes to children that have life-threatening diseases. And if that were you, if you were in that situation, what would you wish for? What would you wish for? Would you wish to meet someone famous? To travel to some exotic location, to experience a you know once in a lifetime opportunity. Well, as you read these opening verses of Psalm 63, David's wish, his heart's 
desire comes out. His hunger and his thirst was to see God. Now we have no record anywhere in Scripture that David ever saw God with his eyes. That's not what he's talking about here anyways. He's talking here about experiencing the power and the glory of God by looking for him and finding him. He equates it to being in the desert and longing for water. It may be connected to the uh, the context of the psalm, the historical setting. The heading of the psalm indicates it was when David was in the wilderness of Judah. There could be a couple of times in his life when this could apply. It might be going back to that, those days when he was running from Saul early in his life. It might also refer to the time when he was forced to flee from the threat of his son Absalom. And he went into the wilderness in Judah. We don't know for sure when. But David may have looked around his, his, himself. He may have looked into the desert and, and being in a desert place and realizing that water is very scarce. And brought to his mind, not his physical thirst, but the thirst in his soul for God. To see and know the presence and the power of God. And and if you've ever been in the desert and you've been in a place like that and uh, you get thirsty, you realize that it's not just needing a glass of water because you've been sitting in church for a while and your throat is a little bit dry. And the pastor's going on past his... uh, a lot of time slot. <clears throat> right? But when you're in that situation, in a place where you're in the dry and desert land and there's no water, and you begin to thirst, and eventually the, the desire for water, it consumes you. It takes over your mind and your body, and it begins to uh, just, your, your whole being is focused on this one thought to have a drink of water. That's what David is speaking of here. His soul, his flesh, it's all of him. Every part of him is thirsting and longing for God. If he could wish for anything, it would be to see God, to know that he's near. And the interesting thing is here he mentions the the tabernacle, the sanctuary. But the truth of the matter is, it doesn't matter whether he's in the sanctuary. He's gone there searching for the presence of God. But here he is in the wilderness searching for the presence of God. It doesn't matter where he is. It doesn't matter if it's in the middle of the day, surrounded by other believers, or it's alone in the middle of the night. His hunger and his thirst is for God. There's nothing else that he wants more than this. He even says there in verse 3, your loving kindness is better than life. Can you imagine longing to see God, to experience Him and His faithful love so strongly that you would despair of life itself if you had to go on living it without Him? That's what David is saying. Can knowing God be that important? The Apostle Paul says something very similar to that in the book of Philippians. He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And a little bit later in the same letter, he says that what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Even Jesus said that to know God through Christ is to have eternal life in John 17 and verse 3. Oh, to have a heart like David, the Apostle Paul, to long to know God above all else, to see his power and his glory. This is the true meaning of life. And there's David on a sleepless, lonely night, and it's all of a sudden clear to him. This is the thing that I desire above all else. What an opportunity in that quiet moment to see with clarity the beauty of God, the wonder of God, and to have a desire of your heart that swells up and consumes you to know God. But there's more. He speaks in verse 3 through 5, not just about seeing God's power and his glory, but he speaks here about the opportunity of a sleepless night to commune with God, sharing with God the fullness of his joy and his abundant goodness. Verse 3, he says, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. It's because his loving kindness is better than life that David's lips are filled with praise. He falls to his knees. To honor God. He lifts his hands toward heaven in a gesture of awe and reverence. This is all in view in verses 3 and 4. David's heart turns from seeking God's presence now to singing God's praise. It's a picture of true fellowship here. David's sharing in the abundant life that flows from the author of life. And the result in his heart is that he's filled with praise and thanksgiving. His lips are filled with songs of, of thanksgiving and rejoicing. I think it's interesting, too, that it produces more than just words. I know we struggle with this a little bit sometimes, we get very reserved. And it's very easy for us to, it's easy for us sometimes to say or sing the words of praise and rejoicing. And sometimes it's hard for us to express physically along with and in a way that is accompanying our, our songs. But the picture here is of both. He says, I will bless you in verse 4. The, the word blessed you has the idea of kneeling down in prayer. You see the psalmist falling to his knees. And then he says, I will lift up my hands in your name. And so we get this picture of the psalmist who's falling on his knees and raising his hands toward heaven. This is no stoic uh, standing with his hands in his pockets and his face 
grim as he sings of the wonderful grace of Jesus that saves us from our sins, right? I can't even do that without smiling. I have a hard... One of those things, when I sing, I was taught to sing and smile at the same time. I do. I do. When I traveled, when I was in college and sang in different groups, that was one of the things that people often said was they noticed that I smiled a lot. I just, I was taught to do it. But I realized, I learned something pretty quick though, when you're smiling and singing, that when you make a mistake, people don't notice a mistake because they notice you're smiling. So I just kind of covers things up. Here's, here's David with his whole body and his mouth and his heart and his soul. He's singing and rejoicing. He's offering thanks to God. He's offering a praise and worship to bless the Lord. And he does it here in the name of God. I think that's important at the end of verse 4. He says, I'm lifting up my hands in your name. In other words, he's recognizing as he's doing this, the power and the authority that that he had sought and that he found. He said, I was looking for, I wanted to see your power and glory. And now he praises God for it. Even his praise and his rejoicing is rooted in knowing God. And experiencing his presence and his closeness on this sleepless night. But really, one verse that just really, uh, really struck me this week. And I I just kept coming back to this verse, verse 5. Very powerful in the picture that it presents to us here. You might not catch it as you read it because it doesn't seem to jump off the page to our modern uh, way of thinking here. David here in verse 5 is speaking of the total satisfaction of his soul. Have you ever enjoyed a perfect meal? I mean perfect. Everything was cooked just right. All of the flavors complemented each other. There was not even one off note in the whole meal and everything just worked and flowed perfectly. I think if that I think if, if that's to happen, that also probably suggests that you have company that is worth spending the time with, and you enjoy that as well because you can't have a good meal and enjoy it by yourself, and you certainly can't enjoy it in hostile company. Have you ever been there? You eat a meal and it's just you push back from the table and you're just done, and it's perfect. And you're just completely satisfied. That's the picture that David is giving us here. But he uses a really interesting pair of terms to do it. Marrow and fatness. These terms probably don't conjure up in your mind the the perfect meal, do they? Marrow and fatness, yes. We're going to go out for lunch after this and we're going to look for some marrow and fatness. These words are actually synonyms. They have uh, a significance to us in a couple of different ways. The first is this. They suggest, the, the meaning of these terms suggests the richest and best foods. 
The marrow and the fatness are the richest foods, the finest foods. And they're a symbol here of the fine quality of God's gifts. Because God's gifts are far better than anything this world has to offer us. The goodness of God satisfies where nothing else in this world can bring lasting happiness. Nothing else can bring true contentment. Because God doesn't hold back. He gives us the best. The marrow and the fatness. That may still not be connecting with you because marrow and fatness don't seem to be what we would consider the best. Give me the, the ribeye, right? We were talking about that last night, you know. But that's where the other significance of these terms is interesting. Because for the Israelites, eating fat was prohibited in the law of Sinai. Now, it wasn't that God had established a healthy eating plan, you know. Okay, we're going to cut out all the fat, and we're going to really, you know, get control of you guys and make sure, you know, it wasn't like uh, Biggest Loser, uh, you know, Wilderness Edition or something. Like, it was, it, it was... It was the, the, the reason they weren't allowed to eat was that they were to dedicate that to the Lord. Those were the best parts of the animal, the fat and the marrow, the, the, the richest part of the animal they were supposed to take and dedicate to the Lord. That was off limits to them because it belonged to God. And so when David says here that he enjoys the marrow and the fatness, how is he going to get it? There's only one way. For God to share it with him. See, the, the real good stuff, the only way to get it is to get it from God. That's it. There's no other way. If you're going to eat the good stuff, you've got to get it from God. That's what he's saying here. The best stuff, the choicest portions, the parts that were always dedicated to God, David says, these are what bring me satisfaction. Again, he's using a metaphor here. He's not talking about eating actual marrow and fat. But the picture here is that these are things that can only come from God. Because true satisfaction cannot be found anywhere else but in God. And true satisfaction is found in enjoying the good gifts that God gives. And giving thanks to him for what he gives. I know Greg was talking in Sunday school about prosperity teaching. There's a lot of wrong ideas and teaching about prosperity today. But certainly we have to avoid the danger on the other side of that which is that we reject any good things and we say, no, we got to just live a life of asceticism. We have to, we have to just, you know, uh, somehow we have to scourge ourselves and, and, and get rid of anything good. We can't ever enjoy anything good. Okay. No, contentment is found when we rejoice in the good things that God has given us. Okay. Because everything that God gives us is good, 
And that means that we offer thanks and rejoicing for the night of sound sleep. But we also offer thanks and rejoicing for the the sleepless night as well. For the period of peace as well as turmoil. We offer thanksgiving for health as well as sickness. And for strength as well as weakness. Because the gifts of God are good. And we rejoice in them. And these are all gifts from God. They ought to be received with gratitude and rejoicing in his goodness. This is what it means to be truly satisfied and content. So David found the opportunity to commune with God, to enjoy true satisfaction there on that sleepless night in the wilderness. Well, there's a third opportunity in verses 6 through 8, and it's the opportunity to cling to God. See, it gets even better. I like this. I really like verses 3 through 5. I like the idea of being satisfied with God. But then there's something even better than that. David says, When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Because you have been my help, therefore in the shadow of your wings I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. What is it that occupies David's mind when he lies awake in bed unable to sleep? Or when he sits awake keeping watch during those midnight hours? It's this very theme that he's been addressing throughout the psalm. The person of God, his power and his glory, his goodness, and the satisfaction of having fellowship with him. This is what David thinks about. And notice something here in verse 6. This is not an accident. It's not something that happens to David. It's a choice that he makes to set his mind on God, to remember and to meditate on God. The word meditate means to mutter to yourself. So I picture David lying in bed thinking about God and rehearsing to himself all of the good things that God has done, all of the gifts that God has given as a way of passing those midnight hours, as a way of warding off fear and anxiety. Rather than just letting his mind wander, David is focusing his thoughts on God, reflecting on the goodness of God. And as he begins to speak to himself and to murmur over and over to himself and begins to speak of those good things that God has done, that's how David passes this sleepless night. And then there's an intentional choice in verse 7. It's the choice to find shelter in God. Again, a familiar image we've, used, we've seen already used in Psalm 61 in verse 4 of a chick seeking the shelter of its mother's wing. David uses it of God. That's where I'll rejoice is in the shadow of your wings. I said that I, I, I really think David must have learned this from his own family. It was his great-grandmother, Ruth, and her husband, Boaz, who used the same picture to talk about Ruth's trust in God. 
David says here, I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to rejoice under the shadow of your wings. And I think this is an interesting thing for him to say. Because we picture the chick running and hiding under its mother's wing. There's some threat, there's some danger, and so the chick is running there for safety. And I almost imagine this, because I, I can picture in my mind this little chick hiding out there and chirping at all the, whatever it was, it was trying to get it, you know. Na, 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 you can't get me. Something like that, you know. Mom's got me safe. David says, under your wings, I'm going to rejoice. And the word rejoice here is important. Because it, it has the idea of shouting out loud. It's not a quiet term. It's a loud term. It's, it's I'm going to shout. I'm going to sing loudly. There's no fear there. David says, when I run to you, Lord, I am safe and I can shout I can sing. I can rejoice. It's not bashful at all. And in the light of these two verses, verse 8 really shows us why David is so confident. In verse 8 he says here, My soul follows close behind you. When he says follows here, that, that word follows or follows close is a Hebrew word that's translated cleave. It's used in the sense of his tongue cleaving to the roof of his mouth. Right? Someone who's thirsty. It's also translated joined. As in, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they too will become one flesh. It's the same word. David's soul clings to God. He attaches himself to the Lord in total dependence, and he is totally committed to God. I love that. David says, my soul clings to you. It cleaves to you, it joins to you, God. But here's the thing. If, if we're going to be confident in something when it comes to our relationship with God, can we be confident that we have committed ourselves to God? Can you be confident that you have made a strong enough commitment to God to weather the storms, to last? How many times in your life have you found your own commitment to the Lord weak, wavering? <laughs> Maybe I should rephrase the question. <clears throat> How many times in the last week have you found your commitment to the Lord weak, wavering? See, the problem is, if our confidence is rested in our commitment to God, we've got a problem. If your confidence is, is, is resting on a prayer that you prayed to commit yourself to God, a decision that you made to commit yourself to God, then you've got a problem. 
Because a commitment that you or I make is not enough. Commitments are great, but they don't last. We don't have the strength to keep them or to maintain them. But that's why the next line of verse 8 is so crucial. Because it provides the other side of the coin. Right? David follows hard after God. He cleaves to God. He clings to God. But it's God's right hand. And the right hand is the strong one. That's the significance of that. The right hand is the strong one. God's right hand that upholds him. This verse expresses what I like to call the mystery of faith. Uh, Let me put it to you in the form of a question. Because I like to bug you by asking you questions and making you think about things. Are you saved by faith or are you saved by God? Are you saved by faith or are you saved by God? Now, before you try to answer the question, I heard somebody answer it already, so I know somebody's already jumping ahead of me. I'll admit it's an unfair question. I'll admit that that question assumes that there is a difference between trusting in God and being saved by God, but in fact, the Bible indicates to us they're one and the same. But just, if you think through this a minute, I think it'll it'll be worthwhile. If I were going to answer the question, am I saved by faith or by God, and someone did, I don't know who it was, but I would say yes, and that's what this person said, I don't know who it was, you can take credit for it if you want, that's right. Yes. I believe. And therefore, I'm saved by the power of God. But I don't get any credit because I made a better choice than the man who has not believed. There's not a part of faith which brings glory to the man or woman who believes. Because believing in God is not some independent decision that we can make apart from the power of God. Believing in God is recognizing that there is nothing good in me. That there's nothing in myself in which I can trust. And so I desperately cling to God. To his strong arm for help and deliverance. It's like the man who once said to Jesus, I believe Help my unbelief. Because he realized that there was something in him that wanted to believe and to depend on Christ to save him. But he also realized that he was prone to fall away. Prone to neglect his own faith. Prone to fall short of completely trusting in God. And so that man could not depend even on his own faith. In the end, all of the glory belongs to God. And so David says, in essence, my soul will cling desperately to God. But he will take hold of me with his strong arm and not let me fall, even if I let go of him. This is what faith looks like. As we trust in God's power and his loving kindness to save us who are so weak that we are unable to save ourselves. 
of the closing verses of the psalm, we see one more opportunity that presents itself to David on this sleepless night. It's an opportunity to side with God. The issue here in these last verses is God's plan for justice. David says, but those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory. But the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. David's enemies are God's enemies. Now we have to be very, very careful how we deal with passages like this. Because we have to recognize that David is in a very special position. As Israel's king, David had been anointed by God. And so the men who sought to kill him were directly defying the Lord. You and I are not in the same position. As far as I know, no one in this room has been anointed to be the next king over the theocracy of Israel. Good. I'll make, that, make sure I was safe with that one. So we can't say that anyone who opposes us is defying God and bringing judgment on themselves. But what we can say with confidence is this. That God will someday bring destruction on all those who reject him by rejecting his anointed one, Jesus Christ. We can also say that he will put an end to sin and to everyone that speaks lies. We realize that those who reject him forfeit their own lives. But those who swear loyalty to him, those who honor him, who, who believe his word, they will be rewarded and glorified. Now the images that he uses in verses 9 and 10 to speak of the judgment of the wicked here is very graphic. Again, it doesn't, just doesn't come through the same way in the translation. He speaks of the life of the wicked flowing out of them over the grip of the sword. And if that weren't graphic enough, then he speaks of their bodies being cast out to be food for the wild dogs. They won't even bury them. They wouldn't even do the honor of that. They'll just throw them out and let the wild dogs take them. It's not a pretty sight. But this is the guaranteed end of all those who would turn away from God and reject his word. This is the warning that I mentioned earlier. But here, he doesn't describe it as a warning. Hey, look out. He describes it as a certainty. You can be certain that judgment is coming. And yet, for David, the king... That very certainty of judgment is cause for rejoicing in the last verse. Why is that? Well, because he has chosen to swear loyalty to God. To trust in his word, to side with heaven. And it's the same for all of those who've trusted in God through Christ. 
We have the promise of God that he will come someday and he will set right the things that are wrong. And that means that he will do justice for the oppressed and he will punish the arrogant and the unbelieving, those who have no respect for God or his people. And so in this moment, David realized that on that sleepless night, but you and I have that same opportunity to choose because the day of judgment has not yet come. Will you commit yourself to the Lord? Will you trust in him to seek his will and his way? Or will you choose to follow your own path, to take sides with those who speak lies, and those who seek to overthrow God's plan and his people? There on that sleepless night when David was in silence and solitude. He had the opportunity to assess where he stood with God. David came away rejoicing in the power and the glory of the heavenly king. And what about you? When you take the measure of your own heart, where do you stand with God? Psalm 63 would call you to seek the Lord, to delight in Him, and be completely satisfied with His goodness and His love. Let's pray.